I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Train Happy Troopers, and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye, and this week we are discussing all things weight and health. This has been a highly requested episode. You've been emailing in your questions, asking for us to discuss this on the podcast. So I thought today's guest would be perfect for this. So today I am chatting to Dr. Joshua Woolrich. You may follow him online. He is a UK-based surgical doctor. And we really get into the complexities of weight and health, BMI, and weight stigma. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. But before we get into that, it is time for our Train Happy Trooper of the Week with this week's Train Happy Moment. This week's Train Happy Moment comes from Nina in Perth, Australia. I love that we've made it to the other side of the world from me. She says, my Train Happy Moment Well, I have been an active person for as long as I remember and have always enjoyed moving my body. I have three young boys and so have been trying to fit in five to ten minute short workouts each day rather than focus on longer ones. This has not been very successful so far. To top it off, recently I suffered from shingles and as a result have an itchy rash on my back that gets intensely itchy when I do quote sweaty exercise even after only a short workout. Side note Nina, I really hope you're feeling much better now. I have had to find other ways to move my body and so decided to take all three kids to the local fitness centre where I booked them into crash and planned to join the water aerobics class. When I arrived the class was full so I bought myself a pair of goggles and went for a swim instead. I have always found swimming incredibly boring, however I told myself after listening to one of your previous podcasts that if I don't enjoy it I can stop. Well. I certainly didn't enjoy doing laps in freestyle, but I did enjoy taking easy and doing a few lengths of breaststroke. After each lap, I lay my head back and floated and enjoyed the me time I was having. The best part was that my back did not get itchy after this workout, I was able to get on with my day without being hampered by the itch, and it was such a good feeling after being sedentary for so long. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Nina. And I think that's a really lovely real life example of how there can be real barriers to exercising and there are so many different ways to move your body and you have to find the right one that works for you. So if you would like to be featured on upcoming episodes of the Train Happy Podcast, please send in your train happy moments or your questions for the Q&A episodes to trainhappypodcast at gmail.com and I would love to hear from you. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Dr. Joshua Woolrich. Josh, Dr. Joshua, I should say, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> do you mind, Josh? I'll only, make people, well, I'll only make people do prefixes when I get a cert and then 
then it'll be like that's sir uh, to you okay. that'll be all that'll be so we <laughs> doctor's can, fine you do whatever you like we can be on first names terms i don't need to call you doc exactly okay. no unless i have to call you tally rye qualified pt level seven million or something P- yeah just call me pt pt tally <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so just to explain to everyone you are a doctor you're also uh-huh. specializing in orthopedic surgery if i got that correct uh, yeah, well, I'm on a year out, but otherwise, normally, yes. Because you are doing a master's in nutritional science, is that correct? I I am, yes, a clinical and public health nutrition master's. Awesome. Um, so just to just to like take both of my interests and smash them together and insist that they fit, even if they don't perfectly, because it's more fun that way. I've, I've I've got the privilege of being able to do so, and so I'm taking the opportunity, which is cool. Very cool, and. What is it about nutrition that you do find interesting? What is it that kind of has drawn you to that? Uh, I don't, I mean, see, nobody's ever asked that question before. And I think that's a hard question to answer, really, because it's like, it feels quite, it feels quite obvious to me. I'm like, well, like, we spend a lot of our time eating and thinking about food and nutrition itself has and can have such a big impact on our health um nutrition is also massively impacted by um things like socioeconomics and inequity and inequality and that's things that i'm quite passionate about myself in general as well um and then as a doctor i feel like we should be interested in nutrition but at the same time that's one of the problems (laughs) one of the reasons why i'm actually studying it is because a lot of the misinformation around nutrition tends to get propagated unfortunately by doctors because they think they know what they're talking about because we have massive egos and we think that it's the same type of science and it's not so there's a lot to unpack there which is why (laughs) nobody's ever asked that question but how many hours do you actually get at medical school isn't it like on you know actual nutrition um education it's actually very little isn't that right on on actual nutritional science, yeah. it's zero. Wow. On on nutrition, because there's a difference between the two, um, on nutrition, it's a few lectures, maybe. Um, and that would be in relation to very specific things. Um, so very specific things around, like, for example, uh, the impact of carbohydrates on insulin levels in patients with diabetes or... Um, the impact of diets uh, in regards to things like vitamin C and calcium uh, for things like osteoporosis and bone health. Like we would have very specific, and it would be kind of, it wouldn't be very detailed. It would be kind of in passing and and as I mentioned. Um, And some people see that as as like a problem. Some people are quite shocked by that. Um, But I think personally, as someone who who is a doctor who's gone through medical school, I I see that as as kind of a a necessity really, that it's, it's quite small. Um, and I think the the best way of explaining that is mainly because we don't work in isolation in the hospital, right? So we we work as as part of what's called a multidisciplinary team, and we have lots of other specialties that we work with, and that ranges from physiotherapists, that ranges from uh, speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, uh, dietitians, hence the whole you know relation to nutrition. Um, and so we we don't have to know the depths and the ins and outs of all of the other specialties that we work with um 
if we did learn all that stuff, we'd miss out stuff that we need and have to know as doctors, for starters, because medical school was already six years. I don't, like, I don't want it to be like 10. Um, uh, and on top of that, learning almost in a weird way, learning too much about something that's outside of your specialty or not, or learning too much, but not quite enough is actually worse, is more harmful because it makes you think like you don't need other people's help. So if I learned like, if I learned a certain amount about physiotherapy, I might then just not call on the physiotherapist for help when I'm doing my job. And that would mean worse care for patients. And so in a weird way, it's we should know more about nutrition because it has such a big impact on health but that's not our primary role as doctors um because there's a lot of other stuff that we need to be doing i don't know if that makes sense but it's a i think it very much boils down to you don't need to be um jack of all trades you need to be master Mm. of medicine right (laughs) and (laughs) pulling in the same people and i think um you know it kind of mirrors the fitness industry in the sense of like personal trainers think they have to be jack of all trades they need to be physio nutritionist they should know a bit about everything you know therapist to a degree and actually Mm. as you say to give a patient or to give a client best care it is best to have the person who specializes in each of those things look after that person together because using each person's like special things that they specialize in specialty and their um, knowledge is actually best practice and that's how it should be so I think I yeah it's interesting how actually it kind of mirrors the medical world in the sense of I think you're right there's a lot of there's a lot of um, this idea that people come with expectations to doctors like oh well like I see a lot of discourse around you know talking about health like well you know if you're doctor you know, the only person who should comment on this is your doctor. But it's also mm. important to know that, like, your doctor is um, also, like, it should be a trusted source, but also is should be, like, you should take their recommendations and think about them critically, would you say? Like, you know, mm. that doctors might do get it wrong sometimes as well and, you know, do give nutrition advice when they're not necessarily um, qualified, adequately qualified yeah. to do so. It's a fine. It's a fine line, and it's a really hard one for mm. the lay public to, and even to be fair, even other doctors when they're patients. It's a really hard line to know where to draw it, because of course, like if you're, <clears throat> let's say from an orthopedic perspective, right? Let's say you're coming to see me in clinic um, after having broken your ankle, and you're wanting to know whether or not it needs surgery, whether it will be manageable in a cast. And to clarify, I'm not an amazing orthopedic surgeon i'm a i'm at right at the beginning so I'm not, I'm not saying this in the sense of like i'm an orthopedic guy it's just not true um but in the context um you you would be coming to me and asking me about these things and if i give you some insight around the type of operations that we could do let's say for your ankle um if you came back to me and said yeah but you don't know what you're talking about because you don't know everything that would be a bit silly because you know like it, I, I might be wrong, correct. Uh, and you're perfectly within your rights to go and get another opinion from another orthopedic doctor. But at, at some point, you kind of have to defer to some form of expertise and training. And so it's a bit like going to a dietitian and then completely ignoring all of their dietary advice. There is, there is a line from uh, 
trying to work out where there's going to be some uh, <coughs> ability to discuss things and where some things you need to defer to experts. I, I don't think that I, if I had problems with my kidneys and I was going to see, uh, you know, a nephrologist, I wouldn't tell them that they were wrong because I'm a doctor too and I know more than them. Like, that's just not, that they are the nephrologist. They've learned a lot. However, if they turned around and started telling me about some very specific and spurious dietary advice, then that is out of the scope of their training. And so that's where that's where that balance and that nuance lies, where it's important not to just question everything because we don't have time for that. Like, of course, you can question whatever you like, but you're going for a reason. Like, we don't have time to be questioning every single thing that somebody says. It's just not it's just not sensible. You can do it if you want, but it's going to be very stressful. But it's trying to find the things that are outside of the scope of, of training. And it's very, I, I don't I don't envy people trying to work out where that is. And I understand why that means that people find it hard to trust doctors sometimes because they don't understand where that scope of training is. And so when they say something outside of their scope of training and it and it and they figure it out not to be true, it makes them question all the other stuff as well. And it's it's a it's a line that we need to make clearer and it's a problem that we need to work on. And it's our fault as doctors that we're doing that and we need to make that better. And that's one of the reasons why I want to be like formally trained in nutrition because I, I need to be able to challenge these other doctors who are spouting nonsense around nutrition because they are doing real harm and they're making everyone's job harder and the public's job harder as well. So, and again, I think I waffled a little bit there, but that I hope that makes a bit of sense. Yeah, and I think, yeah, it's important to, like, yeah, to, to I, I, I think, as you said, like, you don't necessarily need to question your doctor on their speciality but it's like when they're going outside the boundaries like if you're going in for an ankle appointment and you start talking about the keto diet that's going to be a red flag right <laughs> yeah yeah please tell them to shut up yeah <laughs> <laughs> just be like uh I came for your ankle i didn't come for random fad diet advice thank you very much <laughs> yeah and i want to <laughs> i want to chat a bit about that later but first i want to chat really about your own journey because and and how you came to start sharing your own fitness journey um, or weight loss journey on Instagram. Um, because it's I found the it, game away now. Well, I found it very interesting because <laughs> I scrolled down on your Instagram and it looked just like mine when I first started doing Instagram. Lots of That's what all Instagram is. It was. Like five, four, five years ago, we were all just putting up perfect, you know, great pictures of food with like yeah. lovely like presentation. And that's what it was. Um, so I wanted to know that, you know, was um, Instagram, like the process of documenting that uh, on Instagram, was that how you started? And um, yeah, what? how has it evolved since then? Because you don't post pictures of perfectly <laughs> presented food much anymore. No, I miss it. Um, <laughs> no, <coughs> it's, yeah, it, it's a, how long have we got? It's a long We've story. Got time. Um, I'll try and I'll try and condense it. Um, essentially, I was I, I had a I had a really dodgy relationship with food growing up due to all sorts of reasons from um, from not knowing whether I was going to get dinner because my dad was a was a raving alcoholic and so I didn't he would forget that he hadn't fed us and say that he'd fed us and then send us to bed and so I'd have to wait until my mum got home and then say we haven't had dinner and then she'd give us food and so I had the, I developed this really odd. Um, 
relationship with food where I would like hoard food to try and make sure I didn't go hungry. You know, I was, I was like 12, 13 or however old I was. So I was like that to me, that was the most important thing. But also at 12, 13, what, what, what kind of food do you think I picked? I didn't exactly like go and make a nutritious balanced meal and hide it behind my bed. No, I just like stole a tub of Pringles from, from, from the, the, the local corner shop. Like, so my relationship with food was, was whack from the beginning. And, um, I, in combination with that, I grew up, um, quite a large kid, larger than most. <clears throat> and I got bullied for my size throughout, um, infant school, junior school, secondary school. Um, so when I graduated medical school and was a doctor and I started doing what I thought I should be doing, um, and that was telling people about their weight, uh, telling patients about their weight, I started feeling really hypocritical because I believed that I wasn't allowed to do that because I thought, well, I'm overweight, whatever that officially means. So I can't be healthy. And so I can't be telling patients how to be healthy by losing weight because that's just hypocritical. Like they're never going to believe me. I was like, to me at the time, it felt, I, I saw it in exactly the same way as if uh, someone that was running a stop smoking service was a smoker. I thought, well, that's, they're never, they're not like, how does that make any sense? Like I can't be a good doctor if I'm fat. So that was my that was my logic at the time. And the natural progression from that was I must start an Instagram then because Instagram will help me lose weight. The accountability factor. <laughs> Which, yeah, I thought I thought so my my logic was uh, I'm eating too many. I remember biscuits being the thing that for some reason was what I thought was the problem. Um, so I in my head, I was like, OK, here's what I'm going to do. If I eat a biscuit, I'm going to post a picture of a biscuit. And then all my friends are going to tell me off for eating a biscuit and then I will stop eating biscuits. So I decided to deliberately use shame as an accountability method. Solid, solid, solid method there. Um, very problematic. Uh, <laughs> and actually, it never came to that because uh, I never posted a picture of a biscuit because I didn't eat any biscuits because I didn't want that. Like, it, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it worked, but in a really weird way. And it wasn't it wasn't healthy. Um, at all. Uh, but so my, my Instagram started as a, I'm going to lose weight Instagram because I'd internalized the weight stigma I'd experienced as a kid, um, into making me think I couldn't be a good doctor. I couldn't be a good professional because I was fat. Um, and by thinking that, uh, accountability through shame was the best way of doing that. It was, it was very messed up. Um, please don't do that if anyone's listening to this and going oh well that sounds like a great idea it's not not a great idea well you um, say that that initially that shame method worked maybe initially but you're not still doing it now so it clearly didn't work. no no Let's well it works <laughs> because if you shame someone into changing their behavior then they avoid the behaviors that they think are going to bring them shame right but it's it's a bit like um it's a bit like restriction and binging like if you if you restrict food because you feel guilty when you eat it, because you feel shameful, because you think it's bad for you, because you think it's going to make you fat, it works initially, but then you binge on it because shame doesn't work full stop. Like it's shame is not a consistent method of behavior change. It's not like it's we don't shame kids into being better learners at school. We don't shame people into you know, into exercising, although we do, but we shouldn't because it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Um, so shaming people into not eating biscuits also doesn't work. And it just, 
it just makes it makes your your relationship around food and your thought processes around food even more fucked up can I say that on this yeah. podcast or yeah. okay fine cool. <laughs> so it just like I think that's an appropriate time to swear like that's because that's what it does and it's it's really harmful um and no the, the shame didn't work I, I went through periods of binging on certain things and then I decided to um I developed other incredibly problematic eating habits to make up for the binging which wasn't vomiting because I could never make myself vomit but it was stuff that was that I don't really want to describe not because I'm ashamed of it but because I, I know that it's not massively helpful for people listening to it um I've talked about it on my Instagram in the past but it's just there it's we develop tactics to get around the the problems that shame and guilt and restriction brings and it, it they're not they're not good tactics and I got I got really lucky that I came across things that challenged those thought processes um and for some reason uh, <clears throat> those thought processes got challenged and I managed to go back to some form of um uh healthier eating definitely some form of healthier eating behaviors um and some of the weight has come back on not all of it but it but it, that's kind of irrelevant and doesn't really matter um and that may change in five years time anyway <laughs> like it's just you know our weight is fluctuate that's what happens but people I bring that up because people sometimes get a bit confused why I talk about um not encouraging weight loss and I talk about how weight isn't the be all and end all of things they're like yeah but you lost weight so how dare you talk about that I'm like I like it's I'm not deliberately forcing myself to stay at this size now. And I'm just like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and and yeah, similarly, I had had a weight loss experience earlier in my twenties and having been bigger through my teens. And, um, I have, I found that for a long time, it, it, it was a slow process, but I'm pretty much back to where I was when I was 18. So, <coughs> I've seen like it's it, every word, every person's body is different. Um, yeah, and this, this, our bodies will do what they need to do. And um, you don't know what life's going to throw at you. And, you know, no. I think it's, I think everybody is different. And I, I, I think it's important to say that. So in 20, 28- we, we forget as well. I was just going to say, I think, I think we forget that we have, we have a kind of a range set point that our body likes and wants to sit at and feels most comfortable at and that that changes over time but in general we have that and when we start kind of repairing our relationship with food and we start exploring this stuff that isn't about dieting anymore we might be under that set point we might be over that set point and so that our weight might change when we start doing that but if it changes and goes down or it doesn't increase that doesn't mean that that's suddenly a success and if it increases it means that it's been a failure it just means that we were at different points when we started repairing our relationship with food. And so I, I, that's a, it's a really difficult concept for people to understand. And I think that's because we place so much value on weight loss being the only thing that is good. Mm-hmm. But it's, but you know, it's not a, the fact that I didn't gain weight again fully or haven't yet isn't necessarily a failing or a success. It's just a neutral fact. Yeah. Uh, and that, and based on the fact that at my age, at the age of 30 currently, this is the comfortable weight that my body wants to be at. Actually, it's slightly above because I've been sitting and doing nothing during lockdown. But that's fact as well. Like our circumstances change things. And so if when I start moving again, my weight may go down a bit. It might not. Again, that's a neutral fact. It's more about whether or not I'm 
actually focusing on my health and what changes what whether my weight changes or not is irrelevant and it's hard to it's hard to admit for a lot of people and hard for myself as well sometimes but it doesn't make it any less true yeah and I think that is the hardest part I think um letting your weight be a neutral factor feels so against the grain of society it feels a very (coughs) alien concept and I think that's a really great way to describe it that idea of it being a neutral factor and it is what it is the way I personally see it is it's like to a large degree this is out bearing in mind I know I'm very in tune with my body now so whatever my body needs to do like this year like you said been sat still a lot more it's changed but that's out Mm. of my control and there's absolutely no possible way I'm going back to controlling it being there got the t-shirt not doing that again so (laughs) yeah (laughs) so uh, the way I see it is like I just have to like I I'm not going to try and um like I'm not going to try and I don't know meddle with my body's processes right now like I know I know that it's doing what it needs to do and that's just it. Yeah. That's just it. I was going to say, here's here's a last challenge as well for people listening. As much as it's neutral, it doesn't mean that your health ha- might not have changed. So, for example, right now, I am not as healthy as I was six months ago. Now, is that because of my weight? Actually, I don't think it is. I think it's far more likely to be the fact that I'm not exercising. <laughs> that's a massive factor in terms of health. And I'm eating far more takeaways than I used to and have done over the last six months because we're at home and we don't want to go outside. We don't want to go to the supermarket. We don't have the energy or the the mental capacity to cook as much as we did beforehand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm probably, I've had less nutrients in my body, uh, good nutrients over the last six months as I did in the prior six months. But all we can focus on is weight. And so we go, well, I feel worse in myself and I'm fatter than I was, so therefore, I need to get thin, rather than, actually, maybe it's because I haven't been exercising, and I haven't been cooking, and those two things are what we need to start, or what I need to start focusing on, and again, that's when then weight is a neutral thing, because if my weight doesn't change when I start doing those two things, it doesn't go down again, I've still got healthier, and so that's when it's really about health, and not about, I know we've gone off on a tangent, but I feel like it's good to to sum that up in a nice little conclusion at the end there where people have probably listened to that and going, but it can't be neutral because my health. I'm like, yeah, okay. But just try and separate the two because it will be a lot more predictable and it will be a lot more reliable and it'll be a lot more sustainable. If you start exercising because you realize it's actually bad for your health that you haven't been exercising, that's going to keep going because health is a more positive motivator than being skinny. It just is. (laughs) And one is healthy and one is not. One of my favourite quotes is saying that we give weight loss too much credit when oftentimes that when our weight may change, we may have drastically overhauled our behaviours and therefore Mm. behaviours may have changed and that may include regularly exercising. That may include drinking more water, prioritising sleep, you know, getting outside, just increasing physical activity. Yeah. All things which it's harmful know- to give weight loss that credit as well because if you stop exercising and your weight doesn't go back up you think oh i'm fine i'm still healthy <laughs> that's, not, that's not the case and it's the same way that we look at people in naturally smaller bodies who maintain a smaller thinner body who yeah. i i know i've we've all got that friend who is probably 
you know, quote, the least, quote, healthy friend who eats whatever they want and doesn't do anything and, and you know, smokes and drinks and does whatever and they, they, their weight's fine. Um, I don't think we should just be, I think it's very narrow-minded to just look at the weight as a predictor of health in that scenario. Completely agree, 100%. So I wanted to talk about, um, so, you know, I did do a stalk of your Instagram before this chat. Mm. <clears throat> and in 2018, I think it might have been late 2018. Oh, you've got specifics, yeah, carry on. <laughs> you did a post that said, um, I won't be recommending weight loss anymore. Mm. And um, friend of the podcast, Laura Thomas, commented, the penny's finally dropped. I particularly like that. Um, and I really wanted to know what got you to that point where you had your views about weight and health and diets had been challenged and how you came to that conclusion. And I know you've probably since had other epiphanies since then, but I'm just curious as to how you got from being um, very in the diet mentality to them being cha- that being challenged. Um, because I think that's where a lot of us are probably getting to um, or, you know, are on our way there. So I just wondered what that was for you. Well, I mean, it was Laura Thomas's bloody fault in the first place. Um, <laughs> she, she, uh, I came across something of hers on Instagram um, talking about Halo Top ice cream. And I was, I was all about Halo Top at the time because it had just arrived to the UK. It was low calorie. It was the healthy, in quotes, alternative. And I was like, yes, I can eat as much ice cream as I want. And I can still hit my macros. And I can still do my fitness pal calorie counting. And everything's golden. And then she was like, this is a bad idea. I was like, what? How, what? how dare you? What do you mean it's a bad idea? How, how can you talk about Halo Top in that? I, I was just really defensive. And she was nice to me over Instagram DM. And then... I don't know why, but I was like, uh, well, can I meet up with you? Because I think what you're saying is interesting and I want to know more. I don't know why I said that. It was good I did. Um, it was probably because she was actually respectful and open in her reply to me not being very polite. <laughs> and, and it kind of threw me. And I was like, oh, well, maybe what you're saying has merit then. And, uh, and then I, I went and met her and took up her lunch break. And she gave me a bunch of stuff to read. And it kind of escalated from there. And the I think that the point of which the penny dropping, as she puts it, was was when I came to realize that I couldn't guarantee that weight loss was going to improve health. And I was like, if I'm if I'm promoting this as a thing where I'm prescribing weight loss for patients, I'm encouraging people to like pick lower calorie options, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, there's risk to what I'm saying. Um, like there is with anything in life, but there's risk to what I'm saying. There, there's risk to people's relationship with food. There's risk to their body image and how they see themselves. There's risk with eating disorders. There's all this risk that I now know about. And I can't guarantee the benefit that I thought was in, was obvious. Um, so it seemed like a no-brainer to me. I was like, if I can't, like as doctors, we we balance risk and benefit all the time. Like if we if we recommend a certain operation there's risk there and there's always going to be risk there but we would only recommend it if the benefits outweigh that risk the same should be with weight loss why why am i recommending weight loss when i can't guarantee it's sustainable i can't guarantee it's going to improve someone's health i can't guarantee that it's not going to actually worsen their health because there are a whole bunch of risks associated with people attempting deliberate weight loss 
So I need to just stop recommending it. Um, so yeah, that was my, that was my kind of epiphany. Um, <clears throat> and it hasn't changed since, uh, I still, I still don't feel comfortable recommending weight loss, um, because I can't, like, it's just, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, and not because I'm like woke or anything stupid like, like that is not like, to clarify being woke isn't stupid i think we should be more woke and respectful about topics and things that we don't understand but you know people use that as an insult and i'm like it's that's not that's not what this is about this is because i don't want to cause harm to my patients i don't think that's that complicated um or hard to understand personally uh so yeah i it's a weird one because there are people that follow me who are still deliberately trying to lose weight and who want to lose weight and who message me asking me how to lose weight and do it in the way that I did in quotes where I, you know, I, I haven't put it back on and I haven't ruined my relationship with food. And like that, I, I did that by accident, not, I don't have a way of doing that. Um, as much as every doctor under the sun thinks that they do and will write a book about it, I'm not going to be, I have more integrity than that. Like I don't, I don't, but I'm not going to tell you off for wanting to do so because you are you and you have your own autonomy and but I but what I want to do is just remind you of the risks associated and remind you and point you towards a, other options as well um so so yeah that's my current that's my current and probably long lifelong stance on this now um I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie I'm gonna find it difficult when I go when I get higher and higher up from an orthopedic perspective and I come across situations where um <clears throat> joint replacement surgery for example is is rejected um because somebody is over a certain bmi because that's the rules that have been put on by the higher 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 governing nhs bodies and i have uh, i don't know how i'm going to deal with that and i don't think i'm going to deal with that by recommending weight loss either um i think i'm just gonna have to start fighting hard against that kind of stuff but it's going to be it's going to be interesting do you align yourself with health at every size and consider yourself to be a health at every size doctor, practicing doctor? Mm. Yeah, 100%. Um, the, there's a lot of misconceptions around what that is. <coughs> um, and it, again, it's health at every size, not healthy at every size, because health, like, otherwise, that's basically saying every single person in the world is healthy, and they're not. But the point of health at every size is that your size isn't the defining factor in that. And we should be providing the same level of healthcare, irrelevant of people's size. So it's accessible and equitable health at every size, rather than what we currently have, which is a system where we only provide good healthcare to people who are thin, because we feel that they've done something to deserve it. And we tell fat people to lose weight first, and then we'll provide the healthcare that the thin people get. Um, so yeah, that I that's that's a problem, and that's one of the reasons why I I identify as that. I I I believe the paradigm is very valid, and I think we should be moving to a <clears throat> to a weight um, inclusive uh, approach to healthcare rather than a weight um, normative one, where we try and normalise people's weight before we think that healthcare is going to work um it's not it it, it kills people and it, it harms many many others uh and we should stop doing it basically well let's talk about weight then more and and the health implications by starting with bmi um hmm. can we have a quick lowdown on bmi and why 
it isn't a um, useful tool when discussing health or where, what you think its uses are and its, its pros and cons. <laughs> so it's a, it's a population measure. Um, it's a population measure of the overall, of the average size of the population. That's all it should be used for. Um, in terms of using it <clears throat> to define individual health, uh, there are a lot of problems with that, and it's things that uh, <coughs> it's things to, that that it's something that leads to a lot of harm for patients. Um, at the extremes, it can be more accurate at predicting health. So, for example, if your BMI is very very low, the chances of you being able to um, to have what we would consider health from a medical perspective are a lot lower because the amount of fat on your body is probably going to be very low and we need fat on our body for our hormones to work properly and that's one of the reasons why women lose, can lose their periods with low levels of body fat because <coughs> the hormones just don't there, there isn't enough fat to make the hormones to allow these things the processes in your body to work properly um, so we the lower and lower you get the more likely that people's health are going to is going to suffer but we have ranges when it comes to bmi and so if you take 18 and a half which is the lower end of the uh, quote unquote normal or healthy or whatever people want to call it range if you're then 18 not 18 and a half does that mean you're suddenly unhealthy because that makes no sense like if you some people are going to live at that lower end than others and even having a BMI of 17, 16 doesn't automatically mean that there's a problem and that people should start intervening. And so BMI at an individual level is only, it's an adjunct. Like it doesn't, it should never be used to diagnose health. Never, ever should be used to diagnose health. And we don't need it either. Like it's so, it's so lazy and ridiculous as doctors to be using it to to try and just like if if we had a patient in front of us and we're like oh you're BMI 16 we need to make sure you put weight on because you're really unhealthy now blah 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 that's just it's lazy it's not what medical school teaches us to do it's not how being a doctor is why the hell have I learned all of these other ways of of diagnosing health and what's the point of blood tests and examinations and blood pressure and heart rate and all that kind of stuff if I just gonna use that one number and go well. Uh, here's my full treatment plan. <coughs> and doctors don't really do it at the lower levels, but they do it at the higher ones. We get someone that comes in and your your BMI is 26, which puts you just over the healthy or normal range. And doctors go, oh, well, have you heard of Weight Watchers? Because we've got this scheme on the NHS where we can recommend you. And so and on my list of things that I'm meant to do every single time someone comes in for a consultation, I've got to mention smoking if they smoke. I've got to mention weight loss if their BMI is over 25. Oh, well, I should mention it to you then. Like, that's probably a good idea. And, you know, I know you want to say something. I just want to say about the number 25. So I think yeah. I'm right in saying that in the 90s, it used to be 27. But for mm -hmm. the convenience, <clears throat> literally for the convenience of a round number, they changed it to 25. Uh, the, the the logic escapes me. I don't know whether it was a round number, or um, <coughs> or something else. The 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 
the people, the board, the group that got together to recommend to the WHO that it should be lowered all ha- either owned weight loss clinics or were funded by pharmaceutical companies that had weight loss drugs on their on their repertoire. I, I, they made a lot of money from that change taking yeah. place. Let's just put it that way. Whether or not it was deliberate or not, um, I have no idea. I don't know why it's 25. The evidence doesn't suggest it's 25. Even if we are going to try and use BMI at an individual level, the evidence would suggest that there's zero difference between 18.5 and 30, full stop. And some studies even say that there's no difference between 30 and 35 and the lower levels either. Again, as I said, the extremes can make it harder to use. So as we start going higher and higher and higher, and I'm not going to put a number on it because it's not helpful, then it becomes harder for people to have good health because there's going to be a certain, it's not because like, (coughs) it's not just fat itself, fat is bad, any of this nonsense. Like if you're carrying, like if you carried around weight or just think mass in general, if you carried around too much weight, then it's going to make life harder for you. It's not because fat is bad and we should start, you know, discriminating against people and we should start saying, and this, this is the hard thing with these kind of conversations because people, people will latch on to that one thing I've just said and will use it to justify discriminating against people and going, oh, aha, see, weight is unhealthy, blah, 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 blah. It's like, it's, this is not the conversation here. The conversation isn't for me to come on and argue that every single person is healthy, irrelevant of, of size or situation or circumstance. It's that health is defined by so many more things than our weight. And losing weight doesn't fix health either. Like there might be a reason why somebody, again, take me as a kid. I wasn't, I didn't have the security of dinner. So I decided to eat Pringles every night. That made me put on weight. As a kid, I was eating a full tub of Pringles every night. That, that wasn't healthy for me. Now, if I just made myself, if I was taken as a kid to the doctor and the doctor looked at my weight and went, we, this is unhealthy for him, he needs to lose weight, and my parents then put me on a diet, would that have fixed the, the fear that I had of not getting dinner? Would that have fixed the insecurity of not having a parent who was looking after me properly? None of that would have made any difference. and wouldn't have fixed any of the problems. And again, that's not to say that there are always problems that mean that people put on weight. Sometimes it's normal anyway. But we are so short-sighted about this stuff that we just give someone a prescription for weight loss and wave them bye-bye and say, <coughs> come back when you've done that. And then we'll figure out whether your blood pressure is a problem. And it, and it's, 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 it's harmful. And, I, and we, could, we, could, we could go around the houses for four, five, six hours on this topic. And, and it's, I don't know, I don't know if what I'm saying is helpful, sorry. <laughs> but, but yeah, stop using BMI. It's not there. It's lazy, basically. And isn't it right that the BMI was also created by like a, a Belgian statistician who um, based it on white European men to start with. So we also have, I think it's important to acknowledge um, that it's, uh, un, um, representative. unrepresentative of the thing is, though, a global unrepresent- population. Well, it's, it's unrepresentative of white European men as well. <laughs> that, that, mm. That's the problem. Like, I don't want to go too far into that because otherwise we kind of go, oh, well, in which case we can use BMI for white European men, it's fine. And yes, it, it is true. He only used a small, very ethnically undiverse population to figure out his 
and that was because he was a bit of a fan of um he was the uh the the creator of anthropometrics i think is the the word which basically just he was trying to find the ideal size of a human uh and the ideal length of an arm the ideal weight of a human the ideal everything that was a thing that people did back then like they were kind of going oh maybe there's an ideal thing or we can judge beauty and success and all this kind of stuff on this ideal size um and you know it, he was white and european so he used white european men and also obviously white people were considered the uh the ideal at that point which unfortunately we're not going to get into this but unfortunately a lot of people still consider to be the ideal um which is not <coughs> clearly very racist clearly not true um but that doesn't i'm hesitant in necessarily labeling bmi as racist because of that fact i think it's just it's unrepresentative full stop and yes the further away from white european you get the less representative it becomes um but we should just be throwing it out irrelevant as to why almost if that makes sense mm. um i am curious so we we mentioned about these um nhs recommendations and that when you mm. meet a patient who um does meet a certain criteria there's a list that you can say oh can I refer you to our weight loss services through the NHS mm. um why is the NHS referring people to places like Weight Watchers and Slimming World you can answer that question why do you think they're referring well I believe there's there's a business deal that has been done <laughs> yeah but why has that business deal been done what, with the with Slimming World or Weight Watchers? Yeah. Because they're set to, well, they know that, um, well, in the interest of Weight Watchers and Slimming World, they know they're going to get repeat customers for life. <laughs> You're skirting around the topic here. What I mean by that, what I was aiming for is because the NHS still, still sees weight as something that defines health. And so if something comes along and promises to reduce weight, they go, oh, okay, cool, fine. We can make the nation healthier by reducing weight. Like that's, that's the simple answer to that. Mm. Like it's, it could have been any company it doesn't like you know it i mean it's it's something that the the nhs is a is a national health service and so it, it outsources things and so it outsources smoking cessation to different smoking cessation services and it outsources weight to weight management services because it thinks and the higher-ups and doctors in general full stop believe that weight loss is something that everybody should be attempting if they are over a certain BMI. Um, and it's a it's an assumption that needs to stop before we can stop the NHS working with services like Weight Watchers and Slimming World. Um, yeah, I don't, I, <coughs> we, it, it's based on that incorrect assumption. Again, and if it wasn't Weight Watchers and Slimming World, it would be something else. Um, and there's a reason why doctors are getting interested in quotes and nutrition because they're all looking at it for fancy methods of trying to get their patients to lose weight and then bragging about how much they've managed to get their patients to lose weight for their colleagues and it's it's a bit of a generalization but it but it's happening and you've even got that message coming from the prime minister here in the uk you know um it comes from the top down this message that you know we should all be trying to lose weight and even this year during a pandemic we've been told that we should all be trying to lose weight to um you know prevent us getting coronavirus um mm. is there any merit to that <laughs> no <laughs> no there isn't um that it, it makes no difference to whether or not you're going to catch it number one 
um, it, it makes it seems to have very little difference to whether or not you're actually going to um, have a worse outcome from it. And it certainly makes no difference as to whether or not you're more likely to survive in ICU with it. Um, so there's a whole load of complexity there that the papers and the prime minister and everyone seems to be ignoring. Um, first off, again, we, we have to acknowledge that that weight plays an impact on, in socioeconomics. So, for example, um, kids who grow up in poverty are more likely to live at a higher weight as adults. Um, people in poverty are more likely to have lower health in general. Now, are those two one and the same? No. But it does mean that we may see a correlation between people who are at a higher weight and have a lower health if we don't take poverty and socioeconomics into account. And the studies, all of the studies, because I've looked at some of them, um, don't take socioeconomics into account when they're looking at the link between BMI and <coughs> and morbidity or mortality rates. Um, and that's a massive oversight. That's like doing a study on lung cancer and not asking people whether they smoked. How are you going to get any sort of accurate results out of that study? I have no idea. You're not, essentially. Um, and yet that's what we're doing with studies around weight and COVID is that we're getting a population of people looking at their average weight and then seeing their mortality and just ignoring the big elephant in the room, which is socioeconomics and poverty, which has a huge, huge impact. I'll explain just slightly more why. So if you've got somebody um, who lives at a lower, who has higher deprivation, who is at a lower socioeconomic state, has less money in general, it's not always about money, but money is a factor here, they're far more likely to have had to keep going to work during lockdown. If you take healthcare workers out of the equation, the lower paid jobs in society tend to be the ones you can't work from home with. Like, you just can't. Like you, So all of us nice have been nicely sitting pretty at home have been able to to work from as much as it's hard, like I'm not negating any of this, but for the context of what we're talking about, we've been able to be at home, we've been able to work at home with and been able to avoid going into work, avoid coming in contact with people who may have COVID. We've been able to reduce our risk of catching and becoming unwell. There are whole swathes of the population who haven't had that privilege because of the type of job that they work in. And those type of people tend to be people in poverty and those type of people tend to live at higher body weight so what is the actual factor driving the problems with covid is it that they're fat or is it that the poverty that they live in has meant that they have been more exposed to covid itself i don't know the answer to that but nobody's nobody's acknowledging that that's a conversation that needs to take place and it's a very very valid one we can't start talking about rates of a disease unless we have some idea as to what's impacting people's, uh, the, the fact that people are actually catching it in the first place. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult conversation. It's hard because the opposing headlines are really catchy, right? They're really, <coughs> they seem very simple to understand. It's, uh, you know, being fat makes you more likely to uh, be unwell from COVID. We should put the nation on a diet. The opposing conversation around that is a much longer one um, because because nuance is important. And I can't just go being fat 
doesn't have any impact on your relation to blah, blah, blah. Because, because then people just go, yeah, but look at this graph. I'm like, so I need to explain why that conversation is nearsighted. And people don't have, people don't have the attention span to want to discuss all that stuff. And, and fair enough, because we're in the middle of a pandemic and people's ability to concentrate on things is lowered at the moment because of stress and everything. But it's, but it's, it's, it's harming people. Um, and it's harming those who are feeling guilty and feeling shame and feeling afraid because they live at a higher body weight and the government is telling them that they're a high risk, but is also telling them that they're not going to get the vaccine first. So it, it's just, it, it pisses me off basically. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> which I think you can probably tell. <laughs> are there things that we can do um, to, uh, well, there are things we can do to care for our health that don't need to involve pursuing intentional weight loss. Um, and yeah. just maybe we just have a little brief chat about that. Cause I think we're talking a lot about weight and health and how our weight is not this um, massive solution that we've been told it is. And yet there's a lot of factors that go into that. So I know we mentioned briefly before, but I'd love to just really reiterate the kind of key things that we can do as individuals um, whilst also recognizing that there's also um, our health is very multifactorial and um, despite our behaviors there can be things outside of that that influence our health as well oh yeah I mean uh, even so depending on where you were born depending on where you grew up and this, this is where the socioeconomics comes into play again your health is going to be substantially higher than others irrelevant as to whether you pay any attention to it which is very unfair, and that's what health inequity is. Um, but that's something we need to recognize as well when, with these kind of conversations because we can talk about, well, these are things that can improve your health, um, but we just we need to be cognizant of the privilege that surrounds that topic. Um, but yes, there are things, <laughs> to not put a downer on it too much, there are things that we can do that are guaranteed and definitely improve our health um, and again, completely all of them irrelevant of any sort of change in our weight whatsoever. Um, one of which is exercise. <coughs> exercise is massive. Like our, our heart health, our muscle health, our bone health, our metabolic health, they're all our mental health. They're all massively impacted by the, uh, our, our, the exercise that we do on a regular basis. And it doesn't have to be something crazy like CrossFit either. Not the CrossFit is crazy, but you know what I mean? Um, it doesn't have to be something crazy like that. It can literally just be walking for 20 minutes a day. Even that, and that's not that's what I'm not doing right now as well because I'm sitting down doing stuff in lockdown. Um, so even, even something as simple as that, which, again, it's not simple for everybody, but for large swathes of the population who um, don't necessarily think about it, that is definitely something that will improve and can improve their overall health. Um, so exercise is one. I would also massively, and I know you're you're a PT, so you, you, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. It, the um, weight resistance exercise is hugely important as well, um, and something that we forget. So walking is great, cardiovascular exercise is great, but actually lifting weights and picking up something heavy and moving with it is a massive benefit as well. Um, and without going into too much depth, it can have more of a benefit of certain types of our health than the cardiovascular stuff. Do both, essentially. Just do, just do both of them. Um, if I had to pick one, I'd go with the resistance training because I think it's far more interesting. But do both. 
Um, <coughs> so exercise is massive. Um, nutrition is one. Our, our food does make a big difference. Um, not a massive difference, but a substantial one. And again, I don't want to oversell these things too much, but um, things like getting fiber in, things like getting a, a variety of vegetables, fruits and veg in, things like reducing saturated fat intake, those are all really important. And those are things that do impact our health. They're not sexy advice. Like it's not, it's not things that sound particularly exciting. Um, and it's far more exciting if you see someone on Twitter just going, carbohydrates are killing people. Low carb is now the solution. It's, I saw flipping someone the other day equate low carb diet to as exciting and as important an intervention as the discovery of insulin. I'm like, I just want to hit you over the head. You're a, you're an idiot. Yeah, I was going to say you're a twat, but that, that essentially sums it up. Like, Dr. Unwin needs to go in a hole and go somewhere else and never come back. He's not a British doctor, so it's fine. I won't get in trouble <laughs> for saying that. But he does. Like, these people just need to shut up because it's ridiculous. And they're confusing everything else. Um, and it's nonsense. Carbs are great. Um, we couldn't really get any of our fiber unless we ate carbs. And fiber is hugely important for our health. Um, so, yeah, nutrition is great if we can try and focus on that without bringing guilt and shame into the equation and removing weight loss from it massively helps with that. Um, sleep, sleep is huge. Um, and something we forget is that caffeine hugely impacts our sleep as well. <coughs> um, so stop drinking caffeine late in the evening or later in the day. It's really hard to know exactly what that cutoff is because different people vary as to how quickly they metabolize caffeine. They can vary between like two and 10 hours as to how long people take to do it. Um, so I tend to stop drinking caffeine after 5 p.m. Um, it probably could be earlier than that. I don't know. A sa I think that's roughly a safe bet. Um, but uh, yeah, sleep is huge. And sleep is something that we don't realize is bad. Um, so for example, something like caffeine, I didn't used to think that caffeine affected me. I was like, I can drink in the evening after dinner. I can drink a coffee, uh, you know, at a restaurant when we used to go to restaurants. Um, and and I was like, I, I'm still going to sleep. Like, that's fine. I can still sleep. I still seem to get the same amount. But what I didn't recognize is my sleep quality um, was being impacted, full stop, whether I liked it or not, whether I was able to measure it or not, that caffeine before bed was going to be impacting my sleep quality. And so I think there are things we can do to impact and improve our sleep hygiene that we forget about. And some of that is, again, removing caffeine um, later in the evening and later in the afternoon, uh, reducing our screen time just before bed. I, I'm crap at that. I keep forgetting. But reducing the amount of blue light as much as that sounds like a biohack thing and some people take that too far but reducing the amount of artificial light that we get about an hour before going to sleep improves our sleep quality so that's a good thing so going back to basics and reading a book rather than watching netflix would help um <coughs> and what else exercise improves our sleep quality we've talked about that already but hydration. All interlinked. yeah things like hydration as well drinking water um, I think hydration is an interest. Do you think? I don't want, I'm, well, I don't know. I'm not going to get into it. Have I thrown a candle to the pigeons? It's become a wellness thing. Like, hydrate, hydrate. We should always be drinking. Always carry a bottle with you. Yeah, drink when you're thirsty. Like, you're fine. Like, there isn't, a, there isn't an official level. Like, if you're thirsty, you should probably be drinking more. If you're not, you're probably drinking enough. We get loads of water from food. Right. Like, don't panic about it too much. <laughs> let's think of, maybe a controversial topic <laughs> well let's just um you know like the, the little thing drink more <laughs> you know the whole thing of um oh you know if you're uh if you're hungry you should just drink water and i think that's a really 
icky thing to suggest. And yeah, that, like, I mean, if you if you eat, think you need a weed, do you actually? If if you if you feel like you need a weed, do you actually need a poo? How many times did that surprise you? Like, <laughs> not a thing. Like, yes. You don't go like, oh, I didn't realize that was what was going to happen. No, you knew you needed a wee. Like your bladder was full. So, yeah, if you're hungry, you're hungry. Find something to eat that is going to satisfy that hunger and hopefully is going to err on the side of health. Don't drink water to try and blunt that hunger. That's a, an eating disorder tactic. Stop doing it. So we've done exercise and food and sleep. And then the last one, which uh, I want to touch on because people forget, um, is social connectivity and social interaction. And we forget that it, it does play a massive impact on how we feel and our health in, in all aspects. That connecting with other people, and that doesn't have to be in person, but I'm not going to lie, in person it is much, much better, and that sucks right now. Um, but connecting with other people and talking to other people and having that relationship with other people does actually have a huge impact on our health, uh, not just our mental health, but our physical health as well. Um, and it's complex as to why. But we need to stop forgetting that because I think it is <clears throat> it is something friendships are, are really, really worth something, not just not, you know, and not just because they're good for our health for lots of other reasons, too. But I think that's one that we forget has an impact. And so, yeah, those, those four things are things that um, that we could work on. They all require a certain amount of privilege to be able to work on. But there's definitely something that even even someone with the least privilege in the world um, can can have a look at and improve, but it but it, it's much much harder if you have less capacity for change, obviously. And speaking of less capacity for change, I wanted to talk about weight stigma and mm. the talking about weight stigma in the medical setting. Um, and I've heard you talk before about thinking of weight as an unmodifiable risk factor in the same way you would view age, um, and knowing that. Um, health ri risks increase with age I think hmm. let me know if I'm wrong um yeah so I would love to know uh yeah your thoughts on that really because I think that's a really interesting way of how we kind of mentioned before about how there is discrimination and um in the medical setting people may not be getting equal treatment to those who are in you know the normal range of BMI versus hmm. those um in in other ranges so what are your thoughts on the idea of, of how we can treat um, people across the spectrum of weight um, and, and how, that, how that look when it's equal, what does it look like? So, <coughs> so the concept of it being an unmodifiable risk factor tends to rub people up the wrong way because, because it tends to because it, it implies that you cannot change your weight full stop. Now, that's not technically true. Um, but in essence, because of how, um, how unsustainable we know deliberate weight loss to be by treating it as an unmodifiable risk factor, we end up with much, much better healthcare for patients. There's complexity here. And because, so I mentioned earlier that weight can impact health and that can be both ways to just clarify that can make your health worse and make your health better. Um, so the elderly have better health at a higher weight because it gives them more um, ability to uh, recover during periods of acute illness because they've got more energy their body is able to use, for example. And other things it actually reduces osteoporosis risk by being at a higher weight when you're elderly. Um, 
So we're not just talking about negative effects of weight, by the way, but there are some of those as well. That's just a fact. There can be both. The question is, what do we do about it? If we know that telling people to go on diets isn't working, so there are a multitude of different factors, not only that people's weight is influenced by over 100 different things, so you're telling them to change one of them or two of them, eat less and move more, which is nonsense. So you're going to tell them two. What about the other 98? When did, you, when did those change? When, when were those going to change to change somebody the, the weight that somebody sits at? They didn't. Um, so there are lots of reasons why just telling people to lose weight doesn't work. But essentially, we end up with something that is that is generally very unsustainable. And <clears throat> even for those who do manage to sustain it, the majority of them are essentially still on a diet. Um, if we look at the National Weight Registry in the US, which is commonly looked at as a proof that weight loss does work and it can be sustained, all this kind of stuff, the people that are that are, have been classed as successful are all still calorie counting they are all excessively exercising they all have very very little flexibility around their food when it comes to weekdays and weekends they are essentially still dieting that doesn't sound successful to me i don't know about you but i don't want to live the rest of my life on a diet it's stress it was stressful enough during the periods of my life when i was and so if the only way essentially the best evidence we have is that the only way that that weight loss is sustainable is either with massive surgery or being on a diet for life neither of those things sound very valid to me and so because being at higher weight leads to worse health care because of the fact that that doctors stigmatize patients for their size because of the fact we assume health status because of the fact that we ignore other problems we, we overlook symptoms because we consider it to just be down to health, to, to their weight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are loads. We can get into some of them if you want, but they're quite depressing. Um, if we start considering weight as an unmodifiable risk factor, what it does is it allows us to recognize the potential negative effects that weight may be having. Just like age can have negative effects on people's health. Don't have to, but it can do, Right. It's going to vary. You know, you, you probably can picture an incredibly healthy 70-year-old and somebody who is incredibly unhealthy at 70. 70 isn't the defining factor there. It's going to be lots of other things too. But, but age can make a difference. <clears throat> if we start treating weight as an unmodifiable risk factor, we can recognize the potential risks and we can actually then treat the patient with appropriate health care that recognizes those risks without considering them to be a personal responsibility without considering them things to only to only uh, be worth improving if the patient has tried first. Like it just, it changes the whole concept. And so let's take, let's take, um, let's take joint pain, right? So there are lots of things that will, that can affect joint pain. One of them can be weight. Um, and some of that is purely a, a case of physics. If you have a lot of weight, there's to an extent your muscles can't necessarily get strong enough to be able to manage it. And so you can end up with some joint pain. Now, if you get someone that comes in with joint pain, say knee pain, and who is who who is really struggling with that knee pain, and they happen to be overweight, again, in quotes, they happen to be over a certain BMI that means that you've ticked that box on that on that sheet. The first recommendation, the first thing that that patient gets told is lose weight. Now, First off, 
you're hopefully they get given pain relief, but not always. Mm. That's a that's a problem in and of itself that we ignore pain because if we think it's down to somebody's personal responsibility, then as doctors we tend to treat that pain with less respect and give less pain relief. <coughs> that's a well researched and it's not okay. Um, but so not only do we perhaps not even do that. But we're now, we don't have a solution for them, right? We've told them to lose weight. And then they go, well, how, doctor? Oh, well, Slimming World. That's not, it's Slimming World and Weight Watchers, they're not any more sustainable than anyone doing it by themselves in the real world. Because again, as we've covered, there are lots of reasons why. So they're going to be in pain for how long? Because there's rules as to how long they have to try, right? So I think, if I, off the top of my head, the patient according to the NHS, has to attempt weight loss for six months. So they're going to have knee pain for six months. And you're not going to do anything about it. Because as far as the NHS is concerned, they need to lose weight. It doesn't matter whether they've got horrific arthritis on their x-ray when they first come to see you. The recommendation is still lose weight. Weight loss isn't going to cure arthritis. It's just not. It might perhaps reduce some of the pain associated with it but it's not going to reverse it you can't reverse arthritis the arthritis is there full stop you can slow it down but if it's to there to such an extent where they're coming in with pain to see someone been referred from their gp they're going to still be in pain for the next six months and only then might you recommend or offer them a joint replacement now, joint replacement is not the only option for arthritis, but let's say that was the only option for that patient. If you'd have offered it six months earlier, they would have had six months of better quality health. But there's justifications for it. You go, oh, no, no, well, because, you know, they're not going to exercise after the operation. And we know that exercise is really important for recovery from a knee replacement surgery. Ha no, you are assuming they're not going to exercise because you're assuming that because they're fat, they don't exercise, which repeat after me, is weight stigma. <laughs> you can't, this is not okay. <coughs> so yeah, the reason for why I think treating it as an unmodifiable risk factor, even though it's not technically 100% correct, because that's not the point of my argument. The point of my argument is that it would increase healthcare exponentially for patients who are coming in seeking health, seeking um uh, advice and help with their health mm. um and so yeah mm. that that is why um it's it's something that doesn't fit nicely in an instagram caption so <coughs> the the whole conversation around calling it an unmodifiable risk factor isn't one that i say regularly on instagram because it's it's really hard to explain why as you can probably see now from this conversation we've just had um but it doesn't make it any less valid, I don't think. <laughs> so, so, yeah, if that does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's helpful to have that context. Um, and and just I think the essence is that, um, like, should we just treat this patient how we would treat someone who fits that normal BMI category, right? Shouldn't we just, you know, give people the same treatment? Because also, how do we know that someone who is naturally slim is going to exercise after the operation we don't know no exactly we don't no. know <laughs> we the don't. assumption is and it just goes to show there's how, no guarantee i think it just goes to show how important it is um within fitness as well to have these 
diverse bodies being seen as people who who exercise who do move and that people of all different shapes and sizes um can can be fit i think that's really important clearly not only just for our own internal biases that we have but also because those biases then transfer into medical settings where people may therefore be denied treatment because they think people might not exercise when like it should be based on the individual and and we should probably ask the individual questions rather than making broad stroke assumptions based on our own stuff that we've picked up (coughs) you know sure and and of course i would love to see i would love to see patients not need to have a a knee replacement like of course like i wouldn't want one myself unless i had to have one because it is a big operation and you're replacing a joint a native joint with something that isn't guaranteed to last for more than uh, usually it lasts for about 25 years, which is still pretty good, but it depends what age you have it. Mm. Um, and so what, what I'd love to see more of and what has been starting to take place is exercise protocols for patients with arthritis pre-joint surgery. Now, they are still completely interwoven with weight loss, to clarify, and they shouldn't be, but the actual protocols themselves are great. And that's what I'd love to see. I'd love to see before surgery, because there may be some people that even with really bad looking arthritis on x-rays, because the visual x-ray appearance isn't always completely correlative to their symptoms. I would love to see exercise programs implemented where you get patients working intensively with physiotherapists, which they kind of do anyway. But again, it's always about trying to hit a certain weight loss goal that then means they can have the operation. I would love to see a program where they have three months, say, of intensive exercise and programs and strengthening with the physios where during that those three months they look to see where the symptoms are improving if they're not they cut back they don't waste time like it's not like oh well, you just haven't tried hard enough no but if things are improving then we go okay well let's see if we can actually delay the need for an operation for five years that would be great if we can but wait shouldn't have any conversation there shouldn't have anything to do with it because we know that exercise and strengthening will improve people's joint pain irrelevant of weight loss. So we should just be recommending that. That is not problematic. We can, we can recommend that. And if somebody is of a certain uh, inability to be able to implement that because of a lack of privilege or a lack of socioeconomics, et cetera, that's also something we should be uh, cognizant of and something we should recognize because that's our job. That's our job as doctors to, to should be our job as doctors to recognize things that impact health. And we know that that is one of them. But again, I'm diverting off the topic. Exercise. Exercise irrelevant of weight loss. There's so much more evidence for that on joint pain anyway. And yet we still harp on on weight. Well, this because, is one of my <laughs> one of my goals, career goals, is to have a service at some point where people could refer to a weight inclusive gym experience where they get to work on their fitness they get to improve their strength and fitness but we're just not Mm. focusing on weight loss as an outcome and I think it's really important to say like even in that scenario weight loss might happen for some people it might not you know it's the whole thing where we can't predict and we can't guarantee and I think um we can still work on our fitness and as you say get the benefits of fitness without having to focus on a number on the scale like it's just oh yeah so important um and that's going to be so much more it's going to be so much more sustainable doing that kind of method as well because also picture the person who 
manages to lose 10 kilograms before their operation, what's going to happen after the operation? It wasn't their knee pain that meant that they were 10 kilograms heavier. It may have had an impact on it, but it was not the sole cause. So when they have the operation and then six months later, they put the weight back on, then what? Does that mean that they shouldn't have had the operation? That doesn't, that's not seen, that's not seen as a, as a, a, as a failure by the NHS, but it should be by the same logic, right? Like if the logic was you should only have the operation if you can lose weight, then putting it back on should have, should count as a tick box in the failure book, but it's not because you've washed your hands of it. It's like, oh, well, we've done our job, knee operation done, next patient. Like it's, there's no long-term thought process on any of these recommendations. So unmodifiable, please. <laughs> um, okay. So with that in mind, with this whole conversation in mind, because I felt like we've covered so much and each thing could have been a whole episode on their own merit. So we'll mm. have to have you back. Um, <laughs> I wanted to leave our conversation with um, ways in which listeners can advocate for themselves within their um, medical setting, whether it be in conversation with their doctor around things like being weighed and um, how, you know, could they try other avenues of treatment? Um, what are your, what is your advice on how people can advocate for themselves in these situations? Um, it's, it's not an easy question. Um, <coughs> that's probably the hardest question of the podcast, personally. Um, because I, I see it from both sides and I know what would have got my back up and what wouldn't have worked with me at the beginning. And that's not necessarily right. That's not a good thing, right? That's not like, it's a bit, it's, it kind of reminds me of the whole um, tone policing conversation where it's not your responsibility to not insult your doctor because your doctor's the one that's being stigmatizing towards you. It's their problem, not your problem. However, we also need to be realistic that we're in a situation where there is a hierarchical structure, whether we like it or not, and whether we are trying to flatten it or not, there is still that situation where you're going for help and and alienating your doctor, whether or not that's his or her fault or not, isn't going to help you and your health. It's, it's a shit situation. I hope you know what I mean when I'm saying there's that struggle there. Um, so the first thing I would say is I know that there are people who have like print out cards or print out sheets that have a list of things on it that you can hand over to your doctor. My slightly uh, opposing opinion on that is I don't think they're helpful at all. Um, the reason being is that there are lots of patients who come in with Google printouts um, from the internet of things that they found and as much as sometimes there's merit to them, a lot of the times there's not. And it's patients that are coming in with good intentions, but they've come in, they've gone, Google says my symptoms mean I have this. And you're going, yeah, but adrenal fatigue isn't a thing. So I, it doesn't matter how many articles on adrenal fatigue you've brought in, printed out to me, this is not true. And it's, it, it, sets, it sets the consultation off in a really weird way. Now, whether that's right or wrong, that tends to be what happens. And so coming in with a card that you then hand over and your doctor reads, I personally, it might work, but personally, if it would have had been me, I would that would have got my back up, rightly or wrongly. It just would have done. Um, and so what I, what I tend to tell people and tend to say when people ask me this is that 
if they want my advice and you can ignore it i am not i am not the i'm not the orator of this but if you want my advice i would say that the the most the most beneficial way of doing this is to remember that that your doctor is a person too and they are sometimes a patient too and they are subject to the same societal ideals around weight and health that we are and by we i mean me as a patient that doesn't mean it's right and they should have better understanding because they're doctors that's kind of their job but they don't and we're in a situation now where healthcare is still very weight focused we need to recognize that and work with it to try and get the best care possible not that that's fair and i'm working i'm trying to work from the inside to stop that from being a need but by working with it i mean that we talk to we talk to our doctors with some understanding that that they're coming from the same place as we are ironically that they're still they still have that same internalized weight phobia that weight stigma where they don't want to be fat themselves either and some of it gets projected i know i projected some of it um now not uh, that's all just been waffle and none of that's been helpful so far but i just wanted to set it up um and the the hopefully more helpful things is for some people you may know full well that you have dieted a hundred times in the past and dieting for you is incredibly harmful and hurts your relationship with food and hurts your health in general, hurts your mental health, hurts your physical health. And your doctor probably doesn't know that. And hopefully there is enough compassion there where if you shared that fact with your doctor, there would be more, even if they didn't fully understand it, there would be more of a, oh, okay, because so, I know I would. So if I was telling a patient about weight loss back in the day, and someone had come to me and said, "I have a really, um, I have a really difficult relationship with food, and dieting to me is really problematic, and it makes me fearful of developing things like eating disorders, and um, I'm trying to work on my relationship with food right now, and diet, if you prescribing me weight loss as a goal is going to harm my health." If someone said that to me, I'd have been like, uh, "Okay." Uh, without the laugh I'd, but I'd have been kind of shocked I'd been like I, I've never heard that before that is new to me and that would have been a good thing for me to hear and I would hope that something like that would also be a good thing for other doctors to hear because I think we need to talk more about that stuff too because it's something that's not recognized um, <clears throat> so I think that's one way of starting a conversation where it puts a completely different tone or should do completely different tone on the conversation so it's not you are going to give me care that is appropriate, even if I was a thin person, which unfortunately is what a lot of those pieces of paper say, which just gets people's backs up. It's I have, I have, this is what I want from you as my doctor. This is my history. The only problem with that is not everybody has a terrible relationship with food because it's not a prerequisite. You don't have to have a terrible relationship with food to be it to live at higher weight because that's not the, they're not the same thing either. Don't, don't confuse that. Um, so there are other situations where you might just be going in and this is just simply the weight you are and you're going in with something and your doctor re- ignores that and tells you about weight. Um, and I do, I just think it just has to be challenged. And I know that's easier said than done because you're in a position where it feels very hard to do so. And a lot of people, I know a lot of patients leave feeling very hurt and feeling very, um, discriminated against and like they couldn't say anything at the time. And I completely get that. And so that is sometimes when taking someone along with you can help, where they can advocate for you and they can challenge you and they can say, I understand that you have, that you want to talk about weight loss, 
But right now, can we talk about the problem that I've come for? And then if they go, yeah, blah, 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 then you go, okay, well, why do you think specifically, why do you think that weight loss is going to help the problem I've come with? Because sometimes it might, there might be a valid reason, but they just have no understanding of the context around weight loss and sustainability and all that kind of stuff. So let's say it's about, let's say it's about joint pain. They might be saying, they might say that first off and you might go, well, hang on, can you, can we have a conversation about this? Rather than just prescribe me weight loss and have me leave and come back in six months time when nothing's changed. Can we stop assuming that this is just about willpower? Because it's not. And again, all of these recommendations fall short, which is why I find it so hard to, to give these recommendations, because you will come across doctors who just go, no, weight loss is easy. You just haven't been doing it right. Or no, you just haven't. Have you tried keto? Because I've been on keto recently and it's great. And now my now my handle on social media is the keto GP. And, you know, like it's it's <laughs> I joke, but it's a thing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's no there's no perfect solution to this um i think describing a relationship with food is a great one i think taking someone with you that can advocate on your behalf who is going to try and stay calm not angry because anger tends to rile people up the wrong way irrelevant of profession even though your anger is perfectly valid 100 percent, and that is a bit of tone policing there but i think i don't know how else to do it um and the third thing is that people on the inside like myself are trying to work on it and hopefully over time you will come across people who are more and more and more uh, understanding of these conversations and the situation will get better full stop. But I, yeah, I don't know. Was that helpful? <laughs> I think it's helpful. And I think, um, as you mentioned, the idea of bringing us like a something that you hand over may be really difficult. But I also think that having something where you have prepared, um, you know, being in a medical environment for those of us who are not medically trained is overwhelming at best. Oh yeah. Speaking in a language that a lot of us don't understand and, yeah. you know, you know, getting diagnosis of various things can feel very overwhelming and very confusing. And I think sometimes even just having like a notepad and pen to take notes of things, but also going in there with just like a, like a checkpoint of things that you feel like you need to communicate in that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah so whether you're going in there being like here's my thing read it but whether you just use that as a little thing to be like okay like I'm really nervous and I'm finding it really hard to advocate for myself right now yeah. if I just read this script <coughs> it might help me or this thing I've prepared it might just help me communicate how I'm feeling yeah fair enough and that that's something that I forget about because again I'm a doctor more than I'm a patient so yeah very valid and I think yeah and I think like you said because there certainly is a power dynamic there and so and I, and I think what you're describing essentially is the ego of the doctor in the sense that you mm. have to um, be able to kind of communicate on that level and know, like you say, I think that's actually really interesting to say, like, what's going to work in this scenario and what isn't going to work? And I think that's really, really helpful. And as you mentioned, having that person there to kind of ask the questions that maybe you've prepared um, and who understands your history. And I also think you can... I know that like when being weighed in certain, even if it's just going to a GP, you can just say like, um, like, do you need to know, like, is, is my weight, like, does this, do I need to be weighed or can I be blind weighed? You know, can I even look away? I don't want to see the number. And I know that hearing from people's experiences that that is also an mm. option as well. So there's those kinds yeah. of instances where you can, um, just 
you know, take yourself away from certain things that may feel um, uncomfortable or unhelpful. So I, th I think, I think though, it's really interesting to hear that perspective of the doctor because I think so often we're hearing people going in and advocating for themselves, but also understanding that there is a way to kind of communicate that without butting heads and go in there being like, I want to work with the person. And I think, I hope that most doctors go in there thinking, okay, I want to work with you. But um, yeah. yeah, there is an element of ego involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, and people are blinded by the weight stigma as well. People are just blinded by it. It just, it's pervasive and, it, and it's, it's the it's one of the last acceptable forms of discrimination and it feel and and it's not challenged anywhere near enough and so it just feels normal to assume that a patient can't have been it doesn't do any exercise or must eat rubbish all the time and it's just it, those assumptions are so ingrained and inbuilt that it that they're, they're toxic and they and they infiltrate all of the conversations around recommending weight loss too because it just, yeah, it's, they're hard. <laughs> it's just, um, the, the last thing I would mention is just re remembering, especially in the UK, that GPs have a, um, a, as I said, a certain tick box thing where they have to hit certain, it's called make every contact count, where they have to mention weight if somebody's weight is above a certain BMI. And so sometimes it can feel very stigmatizing, and it is. But sometimes it's not the personal GP. It's, it's, sometimes it's not the GP that's that's being that's actively trying to be stigmatising. It's more that the NHS England would mark that consultation as incomplete, and the GP practice would actually get paid less money for for patients. And as much as that feels really icky, um, the GPs GP practices need to be paid to be able to see the patients that they have because they're they're underpaid already and overstretched and understaffed. So. I don't blame them for bringing it up because that it, it, it's part of their job um, and we need to work on it being removed from the job. But in the meantime, it's understanding why it's sometimes brought up. And that can be where that, that question can be really helpful as to, is my weight relevant to what I've come in for? And if you think it is, please tell me why, rather than just assuming that because they brought up weight, it's because of what you come in for. They might just be bringing it up because they're meant to. Yeah, it doesn't make it right, but context can make the emotion feel less strong um, and then can allow people to be a bit calmer in what they're saying, um, I think, hopefully. Yeah, and, you know, I've, be, I've been to the GP recently and you've got a 10-minute appointment and I wasn't, you know, you're not even able to necessarily discuss all the things you want to discuss in that appointment. There's a lot of bases to cover. Um, and I imagine that's really hard on the doctor and that feels really difficult as the patient to feel like you might not yeah. necessarily feel heard. So I, I know that I think it's um, just kind of, I think it's important to consider both of those perspectives and um, know, like you said, like in particularly in the GP setting, like they're up against it with so many different factors, um, unfortunately. Right. Josh, Dr. Josh, <laughs> we have chatted and chatted and I've really appreciated your perspective on things. I want to finish the episode as I finish every episode and ask you what has been your most recent train happy moment? This can be a moment of um, feeling connected to your body, whether it be around food, exercise, movement, but just something that has been a positive moment for you personally. Uh, well, the first one that comes to mind is the fact that I've been coughing for the last like three weeks, <laughs> which hasn't been fun. Um, 
Uh, and the other day I realized I could actually still jog despite the fact that I've been coughing for so long, which is really, that was really positive mentally for me um, to be like, okay, it's not in my lungs, which is really nice. And it means I can still run around with the dogs and like just, just wait and bide my time for the cough to settle down rather than have to try and build back up my cardiovascular fitness as well. Um, so yeah, that was quite, that was quite exciting. I don't know if that counts as a trainer for the moment, but that was the first thing that came to mind. Absolutely. I think, yeah, that's a, of course, every, everything's a train <laughs> happy moment. Um, it's been fantastic to have you on. Where can people find out more about your work? Um, maybe they've, I'm sure there are people who are going to listen who have more questions for you. So where can they Wonderful. find you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. More questions is good. <coughs> um, uh, I am mainly on Instagram uh at dr joshua walrich although if you just put dr for doctor and then joshua in instagram it comes up forget my last name it's complicated um i'm also on tiktok because all the young people are on tiktok uh and yeah that's about it no one else cares about facebook um i have a podcast called cut through nutrition which i haven't we haven't recorded any episodes for in a long time but i still think they're very valid episodes that we've done um, I think they're interesting for people who want to have more of an idea as to what I was talking about earlier when I said that doctors thought they understood nutrition but don't. Um, there's there's a, about five hours of episodes there discussing why nutritional science is very different to medical science um, and some of the complexities around it and why there's a problem. So I, I think it's a good podcast. Uh, so yeah, so for people who are interested in that kind of stuff, um, we don't really mention or talk about BMI and weight at all. We're just talking about nutrition and some of the fallacies that people want to believe. Um, go and have a look at Cut Through Nutrition. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think that's it. Plugging myself's weird. <laughs> well, I would love to have you back if you would come back on in the podcast. In the yeah, future. Sure. And we, I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure off the back of this episode, we're probably going to have... Um, more questions and more things to discuss because this is a huge huge topic just to discuss weight and health so i think um i really appreciate your time thank you so much and that is it for this week's episode of the train happy podcast thank you so much for listening i hope you took something away from this episode and if you did please let me know by sending feedback you can find us on instagram at train happy podcast or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the train happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.